Siege warfare is almost as ancient as warfare itself, and digging tunnels to end those sieges is a technology only slightly younger than that. The Romans were digging under enemy defenses since at least 620 BCE. Now using explosives inside those tunnels to break through fortifications surprisingly dates back even further, all the way back to the year 3019 of the Third Age of Middle-earth, when the Urukai used the fire of Vorthank to blast through the Deeping Wall at the Battle of the Hornburg. But if you don't count that, the practice came into prominence in 15th century Spain and continued all the way up through the Battle of the Crater during the American Civil War. So whether you're a Union General at Petersburg, a Spanish engineer at Malaga, or an Urukai Olympic torch runner at Helm's Deep, there's nothing better than a little digging and a lot of kablooey to break on through to the other side like Jim Morrison. Just thought I'd throw a little Doors joke in there for you. Today's film is a dramatization of one of the biggest and best examples of this tactic at the Battle of Messines in World War I, and one of the biggest dramatic liberties that the film takes with the history is pretending this kind of thing had never been done before. But the First World War has been getting a lot of playtime on the big screen lately, from Wonder Woman to 1917. So it isn't the most surprising thing ever that when given even a little bit of a budget, special effects journeyman and newly minted director J.P. Watts, who I'm told does not also play for the Pittsburgh Steelers, turned his eyes to this moment in history. It's big, it's splody, and it's an event most people aren't familiar with today. I certainly wasn't. But in 2021? When we're still in the throes of a pandemic, when Disney has to beg people to go see a Marvel movie on the big screen, and when arguably the best World War I film of all time had just been made two years earlier? I hope you brought your A-game, because if you're going to hitch your wagon to 1917's star, you'd better make sure it's one hell of a wagon. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So put on your dad's bowler hat and come kick some clay with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we debate the merits of an independent film dreaming bigger than its budget and discuss the tropes and tribulations of this fledgling effort from a first-time feature filmmaker, The War Below. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners... Katie. And Liam. And today we're here to talk about a very recent film that came out at the end of last year, 2021, called The War Below. It's a World War I film, and Katie's here with our mission briefing. With a minuscule budget of $600,000, The War Below was a bit of a surprise for war film fans. It didn't get much advertising and seemed to just appear on streaming services in the fall of 2021. The Danger Close hosts heard about it on our Facebook group and we decided to give it a chance. It was written and directed by J.P. Watts and was filmed in just 20 days with a small crew. 
The story is based on the experiences of tunnelers during World War I and focuses on their efforts at the Battle of Messines. These brave men were professional diggers, not soldiers, and were based either on or very near the front lines, digging long tunnels under no man's land in an effort to bomb the entrenched German forces. Considering its limitations, the minimal press coverage for the film has been very positive, with most impressed by the acting and especially the wise use of budget to create a realistic feel of the World War I trenches and underground scenes. This was such a small film, and the trailer was pretty decent for it, production-wise, but trailers are notoriously deceiving. So I'm wondering, what did you guys expect going into this? Because it was kind of all over the board for me. Liam, you go. Fine. Yeah, I'd never heard of this movie and I didn't watch the trailer. And until it was, you know, decided that we were going to do it, I've I'd literally never heard of this film at all. It was like, oh, it's from 2021. If it were shit, I would have heard about it. So... That's the the paradigm I was coming at this film with was I was like, okay, I'm I'm watching it. I don't know what I'm going to watch. I think it's World War One and I think there's tunnels. That's what I was told. Fair. Yeah. Reasonable assumptions. And I got all of those things. So it's 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 hard to complain, <laughs> but you will. But I'll, oh, I'll dig deep. <laughs> Already with the puns. <laughs> Liam will find a way, everyone. At this point, if you're not disappointed in something, you're just disappointing all our listeners. So, you know, I know you got to stay in character. I've got a job. <laughs> got a job to do here. I'm going to lose my seat on the show, guys. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, as usual, the times where I will watch a trailer are like very, very few and far between. So I didn't, I did not make an exception for this. And I was like, oh yeah, I want to go in fresh. I will say that. I've been on the war movie zone group on Facebook here and there where people just constantly post about war movies they've seen. And I've seen a few posts on this and I read a few of the comments. Oftentimes the comparison was brought up between this film and 1917 because of the setting. And so I didn't dig too deep into that because I didn't want any spoilers and I didn't read any reviews like Katie has, but I felt the comments were kind of mixed where it was like, that's where I found out that it had a really low budget. As Katie said, this had a 600,000 pound British pound budget. So pretty freaking low. Yeah, but that's more dollars. Not by much anymore. And not when this was filmed. I mean, at one point it would have been, yeah, quite a bit. Is the pound not as sound these days? God, no, not since Brexit. So probably this is three quarters of a million dollar budget, I would guess, not busting out my calculator. Yeah, that's about, that sounds about right, roughly. Nerds can do the math at the time this comes out and decide what it's worth. So yeah, if anything, I approach this film not thinking to myself, oh, how great of a World War One film is this going to be? I approached it more like, okay, let's see what they were able to pull off for that kind of budget. That's the attitude I went into it with. Katie, what about you? I watched the trailer because I, I'm not really a a spoiler person. Like I, I feel that the, if you can enjoy watching, there are very few movies that you can't enjoy just as much if you know the end, if it's a good movie. That doesn't speak for everything, but generally that's what I take it as. So mostly because I spent years writing criticism and reading reviews, watching trailers so I could have reactions and all that crap. So I watched the trailer and my initial thoughts were, the production on, on this looks surprisingly large. The acting doesn't look too bad. And I haven't really heard that story before. So I had not high hopes, but I figured we'd at least get something interesting. 
And gotcha. For the most part, it lived up to that. For the most part. I have very specific complaints that we will get into. Don't worry. Got him. It's not interesting at all. I mean, it's not that it's not interesting. The story is interesting. The topic is interesting for sure. Yes. No, absolutely. The movie is not. It's just. um, It thinks it's more interesting than it is almost in regards to how it's telling the story of these men's lives. It doesn't give us enough about certain characters and it gives us entirely too much about other characters. It has its problems, we shall say. One of the only times that my like eyebrows perked up was near the beginning when I was just like, oh shit, it's the sergeant from uh, the imitation game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hellfire Jack plays the sergeant to the police detective. Yep, that's right. I remember it. Tom Goodman Hill. Yeah. Yep, he's a decent actor. And I think I think I was right about the acting. I think all the acting in this is fine. Nobody is giving a bad performance. There may be a little melodramatic at times, but this is a British movie about World War One history. It's going to fucking be melodramatic. They can't help themselves. So our researcher today is Dennis Myers. And Dennis gave us kind of his opinions on the film as well before his history. And a lot of them are relevant and Good, so I'm going to read a little bit of it. So in general, Dennis said that the movie's fairly accurate when it comes to uniforms, weapons, and equipment. I find the uniforms to be entirely too clean most of the time, but we'll talk about that when it comes up to it. As we mentioned, this has a limited, extremely limited budget. But some of the problems that the writer-director caused were kind of self-inflicted, and not all of them are related to budget, so I'm sure we'll break some of that down. This story is set in World War One. Obviously, this is in 1917. Uh, June 7th is the actual real date of the big explosion. So this is all happening in around June of 1917. Dennis did a really nice write-up on the history of tunnel digging, like military tunnel digging in warfare. A lot of it has been done to break sieges and dig under castles like break down walls and set bombs under troops that were that were put under siege i'm not going to go through all of that here for the episode but you can look at our surplus ordinance after the episode comes out and i'll have dennis's full write up there so for all of you who are more interested in the contextual history before this time period and after you can read all about that but in terms of war one and what applies here the germans were the first to use tunneling to breach the enemy's trenches In December 1914, they tunneled under and detonated 10 mines that blew up an entire Indian brigade. To counter this threat, Britain and France began forming their own tunneling forces. Britain started the war with no mining specialists, but by the end of the year, it had established brigade mining sections, although they had no experience, tools, or listening equipment. Starting in early 1915, these units were augmented with special tunneling units made up of coal miners and sewer construction workers. In many cases, miners were pulled from the middle of their initial basic training and sent straight to tunneling projects. Tunnelers were considered elite specialists with valuable technical skills. While they were kitted out like regular soldiers and organized into Royal Engineering units, they were not treated as typical British soldiers. They were paid six shillings a day compared to the standard one shilling a day. Quite a difference. They often were not subjected to the same rigid discipline that other soldiers experienced. Minor infractions often went unpunished. Due to the confined working conditions and the lower troop-to-officer ratio, tunneling officers often had more cordial relationships with their men than the rest of the army. 
By 1917, British and French tunnelers were superior to their German counterparts. They adopted sophisticated listening device, the geophone, which we see in the film, silent air and water pumps, safer and more stable ammonal explosives, which are made of ammonium nitrate and aluminum powder, in place of gunpowder and gun cotton. They also used compressed oxygen breathing devices to protect tunnelers from foul air and fatal fumes. In addition to the normal mining hazards like toxic gases, explosions, and collapses, World War I tunneling took place below no man's land, a combat zone. Countermining was tunneling to find and destroy the other side's tunnels. Diggers tried to work in silence and were constantly listening for enemy digging. If enemy tunneling was detected, camouflet or small explosive charge was set off to collapse the enemy tunnel while hopefully not collapsing your own. In some cases, enemy tunneling ran into each other, which resulted in subterranean hand-to-hand combat. The starting point of tunnels had to be concealed from the enemy. The detection of a tunnel would invite deadly shelling. The excavated dirt also had to be surreptitiously removed from the digging site. The constant German shelling also meant that off-duty tunnelers usually were in more danger while in transit to their rest billets than while they were digging. The Battle of Messines, which is, this is the battle that's taking place in the film, and it is a prelude to what's known as the Battle of Passchendaele or the, or the Third Battle of Ypres. So we're in Belgium here, and this is the French and the British against the Germans. So that's kind of the main opposing forces. The most successful and spectacular use of combat tunnels and mines in World War I was the assault on Messines Ridge on 7 to 14 June 1917. This was a prelude to the Battle of Passchendaele, aka the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. The ridge dominated British positions south of Ypres. The objective was to capture the ridge, which would deprive the Germans of the high ground and give the British control of the ground on the southern flank of the Ypres salient. Gotta have that high ground. It's true. Yeah, and ridge here is relative. The ridges here were between 70 and 250 feet or so. So it's pretty flat area, which is why any height advantage would give you the ability to see further and observe the enemy artillery positions and gun emplacements and all that stuff. Now, there's also lots of aircraft that were doing this in in the Somme and in this area in general and in 1917, we don't really see any of that due to obviously budgetary constraints, but still high ground just like in any other battle is an advantage. In September 1915, Brigadier General George Falk, the BF Engineer-in-Chief, proposed deep digging to build galleries 60 to 90 feet underground, much deeper than the 15 to 20 feet tunneled up to that point. Work began on 21 tunnels a full year before the planned attack. The Royal Engineers coordinated the tunnel digging by the British 171st, 175th, and 250th Tunneling Companies, and the 1st Canadian, 3rd Canadian, and 1st Australian Tunneling Companies. Digging work went on 24 hours a day, with the tunnelers working 8 hours on and 12 hours off each day. After 4 days, each section was relieved for 4 days of rest behind the lines, whereupon they were given a ration of rum. However, because of the constant shelling, there were often more casualties on the trip to and from the rear than in the tunnels themselves. The tunneling sections were divided into eight-man crews. Four men would dig, while the other four hauled out bags of the excavated clay. Progress accelerated when the clay-kicking technique was introduced by Cockney natives who had dug tunnels for the London Underground. Before clay-kicking, tunnels advanced about six feet per shift. Afterwards, they progressed 12 to 14 feet per shift. 
Here's a quote from Corporal T. Newell from the 171st Tunneling Company, Royal Engineers. To be a good clay kicker, you had to be long-legged, young, and strong. At the age of 21, I was all three. You lay on a wooden cross made out of a plank with the cross strut just behind your shoulders. The cross was wedged into the tunnel so that you were lying at an angle of 45 degrees with your feet towards the face. You worked with a sharp pointed spade with a footrest on either side above the blade, and you drove the blade into the clay, kicked the clay out, and onto another section, moving forward all the time. With the old broad-bladed pick, we could only get forward at best six feet at every shift, but when the clay kicking method was introduced, we were advancing as much as 12 feet or even 14 feet on a shift. You actually see this depicted in the film up close where you see some of the digging technique. Yeah, it looked really delicate, like they were being very gentle. But try not to make noise, that's Right, that was the thing. I was like, they're clay kickers, but they're more just like easing it in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, it's very, it's delicate work. When a tunnel reached a spot below a target, a large chamber was excavated. It was packed with ammonal explosives, and the charging wires were set and strung back to the tunnel opening. Yards of the tunnel leading back from the chamber were backfilled with sandbags so as to direct the force of the blast up to the German positions. By early 1917, five miles of tunnels containing 19 mines had been completed. Throughout the tunneling, the Germans were actively countermining. The British diverted the attention of German miners from their deep tunneling with many minor underground attacks at shallower depths. Although some tunnels were lost and restarted for various reasons, the German countermines and listening operations did not detect the deep British tunnels. In late April 2017, the commander of German mining operations reported that German forces on Messines were safe from large-scale mine explosions. The British tunneling was one of the best-kept secrets of World War I. The work was completed in early 1917. Five miles of tunnels had been dug and 26 mines had been packed with 454 tons of aminol and gun cotton. 19 mines under Messine Ridge were detonated at 3.17 a.m. on June 7, 1917. The explosion was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history and may have been the loudest man-made noise in history. It reportedly could be heard as far away as London and Dublin and Switzerland. It killed approximately 10,000 German soldiers and over 7,000 were taken prisoner. The explosion was followed by a creeping barrage and an attack by nine infantry divisions, about 80,000 British troops. Now, if you don't know what a creeping barrage is, uh, Dan Carlin describes this really well in his series, but without getting too technical, a creeping barrage is essentially when you have a large group of infantry advancing towards a position like another trench, and you have artillery guns behind them that are adjusted. I'm not sure if they would adjust them as they went or if they had different batteries pointed at different places, but essentially you would create a wall of artillery shell explosions in front of the infantry, blowing up everything in front of them, including displacing barbed wire and any fortifications, and also covering them from enemy sightlines. The enemy isn't going to be able to fire through an artillery barrage, and everyone's watches, at least of the leadership, were synchronized perfectly so that ideally, if a creeping barrage went right, the enemy would be keeping their heads down and hiding underground. By the time the artillery barrage reached the enemy trenches and then they finished firing, you would be onto their positions and attacking them with your infantry. So that's what a creeping barrage is. 
The defending Germans were stunned and the British quickly advanced between the gaps in the German line. The forward German line was overrun in half an hour. The British continued to advance and capture the village of Messines by 7am and the entire ridge by 3pm. They continued down the reverse slope of the ridge, dug in and withstood German counterattacks. The victory at Messines was heralded as the most successful local British operation of World War I at the time, but it did not lead to a breakthrough nor change the course of the war itself. Some of the most brutal fighting of the war would be suffered during the subsequent Battle of Passchendaele. However, the specter of British mines haunted the Germans through the rest of the war and they later cited tunneling as one of the leading causes of their loss of the war overall. Western Front underground activity peaked in June 1916. Britain exploded over 100 mines or camouflets while Germany fired over 120, an average of one detonation every three hours. Britain detonated the last mine of World War I on 10th August 1917. To sum up Dennis's sort of comments on the film, a lot of it is trying to understand, like, why did they not make this film based on real events as opposed to couching it as an actual, you know, realistic depiction of what happened? Because they changed random things that don't really make a lot of sense, like the explosion happening at seven in the morning or whatever, and the attack, whereas really it happened at 3 a.m., there are some things for dramatic effect. The tunneling took a full year and took, you know, hundreds of people to do, not this like magic Marvel team of six dudes. Yeah. <laughs> like that's obvious kind of. Yeah, 25 mines were laid, hundreds of tunnelers were involved. I'll also say, and I know we'll get into this later, but Dennis pointed this out and I noticed it as well, that without getting into the details of this particular operation, if you've ever read anything about World War One. The first thing you would know is just how horrific the conditions in the trenches were and also just how messed up the landscape was. And how cute the pet mice were that they had. Very adorable. The uh, rats were pretty, yeah. These are like the cutest <laughs> rats ever, not the like flesh-eating <laughs> rats that you often found in trenches in Europe. Right. Yeah. It's just like, oh, everybody gets their own pet, their own cute little familiar. Right. All of these bucolic scenes of like beautiful fields with flowers and all this shit. Like this entire part of Europe was destroyed so gravely by artillery that you can still go there now. And there are crater holes that have now been filled in with dirt and flower. Now there's flowers there, but like the <laughs> landscape was literally changed so much. Have you ever heard uh, there was a, a, a old folk song? Uh, that was recorded by the Furies, uh, the Fury Brothers, called The Green Fields of France. Hmm, no. It was a, a, a big anti-war song. Well, how do you do, young Willie, my bride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside? Yeah, so uh, what we should have seen is something more similar to what you see in 1917, which, spoiler alert, is going to be our next film. But yeah, like, you know, trees didn't exist anymore because the shelling, and if you listen to Dan Carlin's series Blueprint for Armageddon, which both Katie and I have recommended many times, he goes through like the numbers and the details because these different sides kept track of like every single shell that they fired. And so it's like, if you look at Verdun, we talked about this, I think, in our third episode when we did uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. Even to ask the question, what was the most shelled area in World War One? You have to be more specific than that. It's like, well, is it shells per like square 
kilometer or is it weight of total poundage of explosives? Is it total number of shells? Because they have all those records, like all, all of those records are somewhere in the middle of Europe in World War One because it was such an artillery heavy, you know, the, the numbers where you hear millions of shells being fired in the film, like those are, I don't know if those numbers are exactly accurate, but definitely millions of shells is the number that comes up. But that's information they had and could still attain today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's it's in the record. Yeah, if that number is not correct, there's not really an excuse for that number to not be correct because we can find that number. Right. For sure. I'm just saying to the audience, two and a half million versus three and a half million doesn't make a difference to you. But when you think about it, dropping over a million bombs, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of bombs, especially when you're hand carrying all of them. Exactly. Either you have too many bombs, your bombs don't do enough damage or both. It could be both. Honestly, you shouldn't need to drop a million bombs on anything. Right. I, I, I definitely I don't think anyone, any of the generals in World War One would tell you that they had too many bombs, which you could argue is like, well, that's what a military man would always say. But really, the problem in World War One is that dirt stops bullets and shrapnel and explosives really well so that's the entire problem this is why they resorted to tunneling because they were like we obliterated this entire area but the soldiers were 60 feet underground in bunkers and even a barrage of three million artillery shells is not going to do anything you can't penetrate that much dirt you can now maybe with modern weapons we have bunker busters etc yeah that's why they started going with gas right yeah Oof. Gas goes down low. What was the uh, what was the Chappelle quote? Modern problems require modern solutions. Yeah. These guys were not being treated like they were being paid six shillings a day while everybody else was getting one. Like this movie shits on these fellas. Yeah. In a in an <laughs> unbelievable way. Yeah, the class distinction here feels a little forced off like the officers i can understand how the officers would be like that because at this time you know officers were still generally of the aristocracy but like the average everyday soldier came from all kinds of different jobs and would have known the value of what these men do and mining at the time was a decently well-paid job so it's not something that they would be like oh gross it's oh if i could get that kind of money i sure would without you know maybe getting the black lung (laughs) right that one of them already has. And it's like, you can have a, this movie makes a very big deal out of the white feather. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You guys have watched it or Dan, I know you watched it more than once. Do we actually see a white feather being handed to somebody or does he just talk about maybe he got one? No, no, it's only, it's only talked about. And we covered this in they show not girls. So we've explained that, but yeah, it's for people labeled cowards. Right. And and at some point, I'd really like to do the four feathers. Sure. Which is a, an interesting old British colonial adventurous sort of film. But it mentions the white feather in the opening text mm-hmm. and then does nothing with it. Yeah, they just leave that Chekhov's gun on the on the on the mantelpiece. They're like, What's it's, it's for display. I got the feeling that maybe he got one. He talks like maybe he got one. You mean Hawken, Bill Hawken? Yeah, Bill Hawken, the leader of the tunnel diggers. He talks like he's got this big old chip or a white feather on his shoulder. Yeah, I bought it more as internal motivation. I wonder if that got left out on the editing room floor or something, because I mean, it's I, I have no idea why you would have put that in the opening text, but you can't have it both ways where you're going to say 
you get this white feather for cowardice if you don't go do your bit. But when you do go do your bit, nobody wants you there because you're not a real soldier. And it's just like, it seemed very conflicted in a way that pushed the bounds of believability for me. He is rejected. Mm-hmm. And I understand that that wasn't, you know, they didn't know, the people didn't know that or didn't necessarily believe him. But it kind of goes against the basis of the film. I was waiting for Stanley Tucci to show up and take him aside and like turn him into Captain Britain. There's a little little Captain America in there. Right. Yeah, there, there is a little bit of that in this film. We're, we're kind of... I, I'm glad that we're going back to the beginning of the film. Let me ask you guys if you agree with this impression, because here was my impression in general. I, I agree with both of you in that I think some of the characters' intentions, some of the writing, and some of the direction of the film feels a bit confused. But I will say that, and especially having watched this a second time, I feel like for in the writing, the dialogue, even the acting, the production design and where the budget was spent. This film, we talked about this in Saving Private Ryan. This film kind of blows its load at the beginning and then tapers down towards the end. In my opinion, the first 20 minutes of this film, I was pretty intrigued because I was like, wow, I'm kind of impressed with what they're doing here for being a first time writer director and for having a pretty low budget. Like, I thought the opening sequence was good where they were showing you kind of the desk with the clock ticking and all the like very, very, you know, pretty accurate 1917 type items. And they were kind of highlighting the production design. I know part of this was filmed in a museum Mm -hmm. and then they're doing the recruitment scene or, you know, the people stepping up trying to quote unquote do their bit. And I think Sam Hazeldine does some of the best acting in this film and probably has some of the best, his character has some of the best writing and they kind of put him up front. The recruitment scene I thought was pretty good. Like it took me a second to even catch it when he's like, oh yeah, I'm an accountant. And the doctor's like, oh right, you've been exposed to too much pencil dust. And I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? And then I was like, I had oh. that same reaction. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, he's a minor. Now I get it. Like later I got it. As an accountant, I was like, did, did they really sharpen that many fucking pencils back then? <laughs> that guy said he was an accountant? That dude's full of shit. Right. <laughs> that is not an accountant's mustache. No, or a nice enough suit. Or the steely glint in his eye is not that of an accountant. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a steely glint. I know, and I don't think I know any accountants who do, and I wouldn't <laughs> want to work with them if they did. It's not how it works. Yeah, it's not like you're 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 forged in the crucible of accounting. I mean, public accountants will absolutely disagree with you. Those bitches work 100-hour weeks for the first five years. I'm not saying they don't. I'm not saying they don't work hard. <laughs> I'm saying it doesn't give you, like, the eye of the tiger. <laughs> you know no, it gives saying? you the eye of, I just want to go back to bed if I could just. Yeah, it's tired eye. It's not tiger eye. so maybe this will be a better way to focus it let me ask you guys both this for me there was like a point where i crossed the line where i started to realize that some of the acting and some of the writing this movie was going to go downhill and not be as good as the beginning (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yes (laughs) when the man puts the hat on his son dad i'll spit it out oh yeah they said i could go no, you keep it. You're a man now. Yes. <laughs> you mean five minutes into the movie? 
is when you realized we were in a little bit of trouble, Dan. Well, all the William Hawking stuff, for the most part, I thought was good. And the way they set up the scene, like the way they filmed the town, the we'll talk about the cinematography more in depth, but like all those beginning shots, intro scenes stuff like looked good. Like I had a good feeling about it. I was like, this looks like a pretty well done production. I think the man and his son bowler hat exchange was the first moment of like, not very good acting where I was like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, like what was the fucking point of that kid? Cause like you get the bowler hat on him and then it's like, this is your man's hat. And then it cuts to him at the front with his real man's hat. And he's getting shot at and giving messages and things like that. And then he just fucks off and disappears until the very end where it's like, oh, that guy is here too, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I guess we're doing all of this to save the kid with the bowler hat from the beginning. That's why we fight. You didn't need that illustration of the average Tommy. Mm -hmm. You just don't need that. You really, it, it, and my best guess, honestly, is that at least a little bit of that might have been padding because this is one hour and 38 minutes mm -hmm. it does not need to be that no no it does not it definitely there's a lot of a lot of stretch stretch in it and that's kind of what that felt like now looking back on it right at the time i was like okay is this a character and then i expected him to show up past those first few minutes and no yeah, give the poor son of a bitch a monologue Maybe maybe this will be a better question. Where was your second moment where you realized we were in trouble? Because like that one happens early, but it's surrounded by I think a lot of good scenes and a lot of good acting yeah. from again the Bill Hawkins. That's character. the hint. No, my second one was shortly after. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe not super shortly after, but like a little shortly after. Because I didn't love the general's scenes. I thought he was good. I liked him. Now he was okay, but I mean just those scenes, mm -hmm. they they didn't really do anything for me. Okay. And then when we get to, I hate to say it, but his kid, Bill Hawkins' kid. Our Peter. Peter, who, I don't know, looks like the milkman to me. Like, he looks like neither of those people. Okay. Like, he's got the milkman's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and his hair and his chin. And, like, there's, and could barely speak. And it wasn't the accent. I mean, this was, this kid was talking like, a two-year-old, maybe three-year-old. And the, the impression I got was that he was supposed to be like five-ish, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, maybe he's a little verbally challenged, Liam. God, jeez. Maybe he is, but in a movie, that's got to be a fucking plot point. Right. Well, you know what I mean? You can't just let people assume. I put the subtitles on the second time and I was fine. I'm like, oh, he's talking about his uncle who died. Okay, now I get it. Yeah, I had this. I always watch with subtitles so. well i got that but i like i had to like listen really close and it's like okay no i'm I'm hearing the accent and that's fine this kid's like dropping the ends of his sentences and shit and it's just like no that is accurate to how a child hiding under a bed because his dad is going to war would talk maybe but like this kid doesn't have a firm grasp on the language in the first place and can't enunciate well enough for a microphone to pick them up in the second so like maybe get a different kid Maybe a different kid. Oof, that was a harsh judgment. Man, there's a lot of uh, low-lying fruit in this film. I didn't think the first one Liam was going to pick off of was the five-year-old, but I guess that's where we're going. <laughs> now, I really liked not Tom Hardy. Yeah, he's my favorite. Discount Tom Hardy. I like underlined yeah. that in my notes for sure. Yeah, Shorty is Joseph Stain. Yes. I was like, dude, that guy's... He's great. I love him. Is that Tom Hardy's little brother? Is that like Bob Hardy? 
at worst, you could definitely play like a body double slash stuntman for Tom Hardy. Like, just make a career out of all of that. You're like perfect. Yeah, the, he looks like something straight out of Bronson. Like, if you combine Tom Hardy with the Grave Digger from uh, from Kingdom of Heaven, do you remember that guy? You put those two people together, you get Shorty. Yeah, even more than David Gordon Green, who's the other Tom Hardy almost, I believe. Hang on. Tom Hardy almost. <laughs> Did you just Google Tom Hardy almost? Logan Marshall Green is the other actor that I see, and I'm like, is that Tom Hardy? No, no, definitely not. That no, The scene for me where things really start to go downhill was when Hellfire Jack is talking to the manager of the mine or whatever, whoever that rich guy is. He's just sitting there very pompously and drinking, swirling his brandy or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is real over the top. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then he threatens him. He's like, you give me what I want or I'm sending you to the front. Because that's a thing you can do. That was a good line, though. You know, if there's one thing I despise more than the enemy, Mr. Rogers, it's those who climb on the backs of the fallen and claim to be patriots. I seem to remember a few months ago, pompous, jumped-up little man in charge of his own fiefdom. He thought he was above the war, so we decided to give him a closer look at it. If you catch my drift. When he said it, I was like, are they talking? Who is he talking? Is this what? Like, it was just too confusing to me that because he was supposed to be referencing, like, a historical figure that everybody knew about, oh, but like a famous magnate that got sent to the trenches. <laughs> right, right. Because there were definitely men of industry who were accused of selling shoddy products to the military who then oh. didn't do so well for themselves after they were found out. Oh, interesting. But it just felt a little weird. And then he goes and he has the conversation with the miners and they laugh and he's no, these if men have died in this way. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. We're going we're going full melodrama. Yeah. And it's like, hey, real quick, before you get sworn into anything, let me just show you a real quick map of our positions and where our entire line is and where the enemy line <laughs> is and outline the entire fucking plan. To like these five randos. Okay, that's actually a good point I hadn't thought about. Liam brings up a good like security, national security but issue. I could see how at that time, you know, some average miners in, in 1916, 17 England. I don't give a shit. Like, no, there were spies. Well, definitely. But <laughs> a miner isn't as a spy is not going to make a whole lot of headway. Here's the thing, though. I, I, I 100% am with you guys when you're talking about the melodrama and when things are overwritten and over acted but i feel like a lot of the scenes kind of go in and out of that where there are like moments and lines that are done well i really liked the sequence where he starts knocking on the table while you enjoyed those few seconds laughing one of our boys was hit in the head by a fritz sniper somebody's father was pulverized by a mortar bomb and someone, perhaps a friend of yours, had his guts ripped open by shrapnel. The way they pull that off, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, it's interesting and different and unique. And yeah, maybe he oversells the lines a little bit. But I did like the way they did that, where he was like, look, people are dying right now. Like, this is important. Like, this is we're not fucking around here. Well, it's no different from the from the scene that we just saw in the imitation game. Mr. Turing, do you know how many British servicemen have died because of Enigma? Uh, no, I don't. Three. While we've been having this conversation. Oh, look, there's another. 
That's exactly what I but mean. That's better written and performed better. Okay, yeah, but they had all this budget and it's Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Strong. They had Mark Strong. But I think it's more that that was the point where I was like, they are reaching for the skies with this, which I totally approve of. Even, mm-hmm. you, even if you have, you know, a six, a five, six hundred thousand pound budget, reach for the fucking skies. But it just kind of falls a little bit short. And that was the first time when it re- I really started to feel it. And then throughout the rest of the film, there just became more and more and more of those beats where it was like, ugh, like the scene with them playing cricket. I don't know what the hell that's in the movie, like all together for, but well, yeah. before we even get there, can we talk for a second about uh, Susie Sassy Pants, the sexy secretary? Oh God, right? She had to be somebody's wife. She had one line, and she just drizzled all of the sass onto it. His lordship's waiting for you, sir. <laughs> the accent was entrancing, but like I was just like, wh- I don't understand the point of this character, but. Is that supposed to be Margaret who makes Charlie walk off into no man's land and kill himself? Oh, I think it might be because she has a credit in here. Oh, man, that was completely over my head. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be. And I'm trying to remember if her name is Margaret. It is Margaret. You are correct. And then like there's dialogue later where it's like, oh, the secretary, her husband came back. So she broke off the affair with Charlie. And I'm like, wait. Sassy Susie, the the sexy secretary. I'm amazed if I'm right about that. I think you are because there's no credit for the secretary. There is a very tenuous thread that draws from like one to the next to the next. That seems like another completely unnecessary connection. Like, I don't know why we need to. Yeah. I don't know why that dude needed to kill himself. I don't know. I'm just like, we're not there. We're not. there. I know we're not there. We're not there yet. Okay. Before we move on from the only two or three women characters that we see in the film. Yes. I had very mixed feelings about Anna McGuire's acting. So she plays Jane Hawking, Hawking's wife. Yeah. Where were you guys at on that? Again, I, in general, in this film, I am putting on my lenient pants, not my shitting pants, because I'm like, (laughs) okay, look, like they have a limited budget. I'm sure some of these actors have not been in big stuff. They're getting their start. You know, I'm not an actor, whatever. Well, no, here's the thing is that none of this movie and absolutely none of it is the actor's fault. No, I agree. The actors all showed up to work. They're all doing their best. This is, you know, possibly a big break for some of these folks. All of the performances I did not like, I do not lay at the actor's feet. I put that directly on J.P. Watts. I blame him for writing this dialogue this way and directing these scenes this way. Yeah, he co-wrote it with Thomas Woods. Yeah, I feel like the exact same because... There's no evidence, like nobody's giving a super necessarily over the top performance. Nobody is flat or wooden and they're all given their best. But it's just sometimes the dialogue is so cringe. And it. I will say it's not it's not embarrassing. Like this isn't a bad movie. You sure about that? I, I mean, we'll get into that more later, but <laughs> it's competently made for the most part, which being competent isn't a Exactly a compliment, but 
I've watched a lot of shitty movies and it's way better than them. I, I still think one of the goals of this episode is going to be for us and the audience to find out whether Liam has any compassion in his cold, dead heart. Because I'm like, haven't you been in a beginning playwright? Haven't you been a beginning actor? Don't you have like a little bit of feeling for these people who are. So give me 600,000 pounds to make a movie and it will be a lot more interesting than this. You want to make a prestige picture without prestige picture money. What you do as a first time filmmaker, because he only has one other credit and it's a short film. Mm -hmm. And somehow on the stock of that short film, somebody gave him 600,000 pounds to make another movie. That's not true. He he did. He's done a lot of other stuff. It's just mostly in the production side of things. Right. But he has one other directing credit and it was for a short. Right. This is his first feature film as a director, right? Yeah. He's done lots of additional crew and visual effects and that kind of thing. So that's that's how he got that money. But I'm just saying you take that six hundred thousand dollars, you do something good with it, and then you get the money to make this movie. Right. I can see Liam's theater background coming through here because correct me if I'm wrong, Liam, but often in theater, you are dealing with not being able to physically reproduce these big things. And often you're using metaphor or just illusion to represent. And you have a budget of $150, like a $600 budget is something I've worked with before. Right. And so the dialogue and the acting is everything because you're going to have like a door and some lights and like some sound and music, but like that you're representing all these things. So the actors really have to sell everything. And that's where I think this movie has a little bit of a Terminator problem, meaning they have a certain budget to work with, relatively speaking, but they kind of blew it on certain things and then didn't really spread it out for other things. Like, for example, when you see the first scene in the trenches where the new kid, who I think is the bowler hat kid, right? It's the bowler hat kid. Right. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. see a bowler hat kid in the first trench and you kind of see this uh, descending crane shot from above and you can see like artillery yeah. going off in the background and Again, well, I know we're going to get to the cinematography because it deserves to be talked about in detail, but the shot's like great. And I'm looking at this descending shot in the trench and I'm like, oh, shit, this looks like a smaller scale 1917. Like this looks really nice and the explosions are believable. Like you can tell they're CGI, but it's like well done. And then you get into the trench and you get this intense drama, which again, even in this scene, there are a few lines delivered with some melodrama that was a little over the top. Like when the guy gets to the phone, I think he's like overselling that part. But mm-hmm. for example, the guy right before that, who's telling him, hey, get to Lieutenant so-and-so and give him the message, blah, blah, blah. Right when I was like, oh, he's kind of overacting. And then it like, wham, an explosion takes him out. And I was like, all right, uh, that was pretty cool. Maybe he should have had a little more urgency. <laughs> I, I thought that in that little sequence, they did a lot that kind of impressed me yeah. off the bat where I was kind of like, oh, shit. Maybe I underestimated this movie and I'm not really sure where it's going. And then it kind of fizzles from there. And later I realized I'm like, oh, they just expended a lot of the budget on the visual yes. effects for this particular <laughs> small seat. Right. Because all the trench scenes, 1917 built two miles of trenches. And so you're able to do not just these intimate close up shots where details are pretty good and accurate and you really believe the space and it's selling it to you but you also have these longer sweeping shots where again for everything that's in frame you believe that there is this bigger outside world there 
you know, that doesn't go beyond the edges of the frame, but it's it's a wide shot. And here, everything is on a much smaller scale, but they really expand that scale out as far as they can in that first shot. And there's a couple of shots like that in the film where, again, I was like, oh, I see what they're doing here. But it just seems like for a lot of those things later, they ran out of money. And the casting and the writing is one of those things. The right? special effects were done by the director. So interesting. That tells you anything. He's the one who got the credit for it. I think at certain points, they spend the money well. But I will say that the vast majority of the time when they're in the trenches, I was just like, is this a slightly more well-produced version of Black Adder? Because mm. there's a whole lot of Black Adder feel in their season where they're in World War I. Because it's, it's, it's so bland and easily reproducible type situation, which was accurate for the time period. But it kind of suffers in a movie, especially because they, they do spend a lot of time literally underground with watching the men digging and moving these bags right. of clay back and forth. And the cinematography is really good it is. for this film. And cinematographer was uh, Nick Cook, who, for everybody listening here, born in 1988. Oh, wow. Isn't that just a lovely thing to know? So this guy's Done a lot of stuff, a mm -hmm. lot of stuff as a cinematographer, lots of shorts, documentaries. So he has been honing his craft since 2012. So okay. he's been doing this 10 years and he's obviously learned a lot. And honestly, I think I would I would be interested to see what he could do with a real budget, because from what it looks like, this is probably the biggest thing he's done other than like TV shows and stuff. So mm -hmm. I would guess this was his big chance to get cinematic with it. And I thought it was pretty good, especially with the limited budget and the limited shooting space. There's really good lighting in this too. Right. And lighting makes all the difference on a low budget picture. The actual photography looks really good. You could tell they knew what they were doing with the lighting, both underground in fields in the daylight and more nighttime scenes like it all looks really good at least in my opinion the color grading and all that stuff looks really good mm. it looks beautiful the candlelight we gotta say that candlelight is perfect yeah i think the candlelight backlit shots look really great even in the tunnel like many many times there were moments where i could have taken a still frame of this and i was like it's not Roger Deakins level, but it's like not that far off. Like photographically, there are a lot of beautiful shots here. One thing with George, the part where he's hiding in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And the German is there smoking. They're not quite sure how to light that well. Yeah. Right. I didn't think that was badly done necessarily, but what I would have fucking loved, because it reminded me of this, was actually that one scene in Atonement. Oh, yes. When she walks in and she can't see past the light of the lamp, but then the lamp goes out of frame and then she can see them. Yes. So the German's sitting there and he hears something, right? Mm -hmm. But the candle is getting in his eyes. Mm -hmm. So he puts his hand between his eyes and the candle and then he sees George right. and then shit goes south. But that's like basic tension building, editing, directorial stuff that this guy just doesn't have in his toolkit yet. Yeah, there's so much that shows promise. Mm -hmm. eh. A lot of these things show promise, but promise only gets you so far. But I feel like the lack of experience and lack of maturity came through more in how 
there are many, many scenes and many just sections of the film that feel kind of rushed, which again, may be a product of the budget. I feel like that might be an editing thing more than a cinematography thing though. Yeah. Sure, editing too, but also some of the scenes. So here's a good example where I don't think editing really would have fixed this. You would have had to just shoot this scene a little slower and give it a little more time. There's the scene where the miners first get to the sort of in the rear little garrison town before they get Mm -hmm. to the communication trenches, right? And they're like, oh, we just got here. We don't know what the hell we're doing. And the lieutenant, who's very overacty, is kind of like, who the hell are you? And he's like, well, do you have papers? You know, that whole scene. (laughs) Greetings, citizen. Where can I direct you? (laughs) Right. Yep. So this lieutenant, who is one of many, like impeccably dressed and 100% clean, pristine, yeah. ironed outfits where I'm like, what the fuck? Like, none of these people look like they've been at war whatsoever. And some people complain about 1917 about that, where there's, like, not enough dirt and stuff. And I'm like, this is a hundred times worse. 1917 is, like, 90% dirt. Yeah. There's a few moments when people wear uniforms are too clean, but whatever. We'll get into that next episode. I'm just saying, in this one... Outside of when the miners have like the actors have obviously gotten sweaty and they're down to like their undies and those are filled with dirt. Like other than that, everything was just super clean. Like these uniforms, they just put them on and they were they were probably rented. Yeah. And so therefore, let's let's not get them too. Let's not get the jackets too dirty, guys. Let's take take them off before you go digging. We can't have you in there digging in them. It's another budget issue, right? They're like, we don't have, yeah. we can't afford this dry cleaning. Like you need to keep the shit clean. So yes. the lieutenant leads them into the trenches, does a little bit of exposition, right? Where he's like, well, these are communication trenches and they connect the front line to the midline to whatever. And there's a super quick scene. I literally had to stop and point it out to Jackie and rewind this. But the lieutenant walks into the trench in a corner and you just like, you see him kind of turn and say cheerio chap or something and then walk around the corner. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? What did I just miss? It's almost like my subconscious mind knew what I just saw, but my eyes didn't really have time to process it. And so I rewound it. And and I, then I realized that before I rewatched it, I realized I went back in my mind to a moment in Dan Carlin's series where he reads a story about how atrocious the conditions in the trenches in World War One were and how it got to the point where bodies were just starting to get buried into the mud of the trench where there were bodies underneath you that you were walking on top of that would kind of freeze over in the night in the in the wintertime. Obviously, here it's June. But specifically, he told a real story about a guy that they all decided to call this corpse Bill or something like that. But there was a hand sticking out the side of a trench. And as the soldiers would walk by it, they would shake it in sort of this dark humor that people who are dealing with death every day, right, have these instances of dark humor because it's like, well, what else are you going to do? We can't take this body out and bury it because we're going to get shot by the Germans. So it literally has to sit here and decompose and stink and make our life a living hell. And more dangerous because it's it brings disease. Oh, for sure. And rats and all that. Might as well, every time we walk past it, make a joke out of it and shake his hand. Like, that's a very real thing. And I understand that human sentiment of dark humor. But they do it so fast in the film. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting that they chose to take an anecdote from history that is an actual recorded thing that really happened at least once, but probably more than once. But it happens so fast that if you don't have that background. I, I don't. Did you guys catch it? Liam, nope. did you notice? 
Nope. Nope. Not oh, even neither. You guys caught it. Okay. Nope. Yeah. So I had to rewind it. But again, as I was running, I was like, oh, I know what that is. He's shaking a dead body's hand that's sticking out of the trench. And sure enough, I rewind it and I see him do the thing, but it's all over in less than two seconds so that the audience barely has a chance to see what happened. And I think that's just an anecdote and a microcosm of what I felt was happening a lot in this film. It's it's a lot like Charlie banging that secretary and then killing himself over it. Yeah. Well, we're like, why are you so upset? Why is that a breadcrumb trail through the forest? You shouldn't you just make that part of the plot? You obviously had time to fill. <laughs> so much time. And they don't even spend a whole lot of time explaining to us what happened or giving Charlie his moment. Like we should have had a lot more moments of him like and seen close-ups of his face having this emotional reaction. The real meat of emotion that we get is him climbing up the thing and then lasting far too long walking into no man's land. Everybody lasts far too long in no man's land. Bill Hawkins just wandering around out there with that dude. Like, what are you doing, man? When also when Charlie goes out there, literally in real time, I'm writing notes and I was like, uh, why does Charlie kill himself? And then like 10 seconds later, you see Bill pick up the letter and well, then they say it, right? There's a voiceover where it says, oh, when he's writing to his wife. Yeah, she's going back to her husband. And so they've decided to call off the affair. And that's why he's killing himself. And I'm like, okay, so in retrospect, now I know what's happening. But he was also banging some other dude's wife. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, this doesn't feel earned. This does not feel earned. I mean, that doesn't matter. Love is love. Look, his girlfriend dumped him. No, I mean, it kind of does, though, where it's like, come on. No, I'm just saying that you know that that is a situation that is likely to not work out for you. Right. But when has that deterred a young 18, 19 year old from getting involved in its shit? I mean, come on. I feel like that's just too much romance. It's not like his wife left him for somebody else. Right. His girlfriend left him for her husband. I assumed that the girlfriend had died. That was my assumption. (laughs) Yeah. He had to see that coming at some point. And so like that doesn't put me in like, oh, only thing to do now is to kill myself. Right. It could have been like his high school sweetheart. You know, that or whatever the equivalent would be at this time. You know, this girl he's been courting for years as told him that she can't wait any longer. She's she's met a new man, the love of her life like that. I could see or him getting a message, you know, that she's died of an illness or something like that, where he's missing out on those last moments with her. But it being like, oh, she went back to her husband. It's like I it just does not weigh emotionally hard enough for me for the distraught reaction that he has. Right. I'm on board with that. I think a lot of the character motivations in the film in general are undersold. Yeah, they're very undeveloped, underdeveloped. Part of the problem with that is, and I'm sorry, I know I'm shitting on this movie possibly disproportionately. You you still have a breakdown left, Liam. You can always make up for it in your breakdown. I know. I always could (laughs) just be like, and I really liked it, guys. Not gonna, but could. (laughs) But when the problem isn't in the technicals, when the problem is baked into the script. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it's the fact that you fabricate all of this adversity from the higher ups, from the other soldiers, from nobody taking them seriously to nobody thinking this mission is going to work. We spend a lot of time on that, which just feels preposterous, right? Right. And if you would now again, maybe this is the theater background coming from. But one of the advantages of writing a play versus a movie 
is that it has to be a tighter script to be a play than it does to be a movie. Yeah. Mm. Every scene counts. Every scene counts. All of the dialogue, everything you put into it has to push the story and the action forward. And you're limited by locations. You're you're usually not going to have like 16 locations in a play. It's usually going to be in one room. And you just have to make that riveting. And I feel right. like this would have been better as that. Instead of like throwing in all this other stuff, like you got these guys who were stuck for six months underground digging beneath no man's land with the possibility of like Germans breaking through the wall at any minute. And by the way, I'm banging this other guy's wife and it's really kind of weighing on me guys. Like, I don't know what to do about it. Like you're in a tunnel with these people and you can make a drama out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That is first of all, way less than 600,000 pounds to produce. Mm -hmm. Second of all, way more interesting. Well, I like what they did with George. I thought that was a good use of drama and I don't think we needed to have the subplot of his brother. Yeah, it took me forever to figure out that Charlie was his brother. <laughs> yeah, we didn't need the subplot of Charlie sleeping with another man's wife and then killing himself over it in order to do that. Because he's the one who always almost dies when he's trying to go to the bathroom, right? Right. Charlie is. Yeah, Charlie. So we could have had him get shot in that moment when he's just careless about it. And then it affects George. And then we have that. Wouldn't you build up the trench a little bit more around the potty? The latrine? I, yeah. I think the idea is that he's new and like he's probably sticking his head up too far. Like, I think the idea is just like he doesn't know how to behave in a trench. I don't know. It's like the sniper just has that one. He's like, man, I'm really going to get these guys. Yeah, because he's like, look at this fucking new guy who's like helmet is sticking out of the trench every time he goes to take a shit. I'm going to take some pot shots at it. I mean, whatever. I was fine with that. But that that would have been a more reasonable explanation. For him, and then you could have had you know the letter sent back to the girlfriend, and you get to see her sadness, which they do a little bit of, but not too much. No, that was his mother, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, in regards to we see the reactions of the the women at home experiencing this, like we do in We Were Soldiers or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So they really wanted to do a lot more with this, I think, mm -hmm. and we're very limited for the many reasons we've talked about. So it was. Sometimes it's just like doing too much, trying too hard. Going back for a second to sort of uh, things that are undersold and over-dramatized and unearned. It starts off not quite as bad, but almost from the very beginning. Andrew Scarborough's character, Colonel Fielding, the like salt and pepper haired colonel who's just like disgruntled. The shitty guy. Uh exhausting guy holy yeah like the darth vader dude i was like <clears throat> where is this guy coming off colonel palpatine he is just so fucking angry at the world and at right? hellfire jack and at all these miners like seething with disgust and hatred for these guys and it is just so fucking unearned you'd expect some kind of backstory where like a miner broke into his house and killed his parents or something i don't understand it whatsoever i'm like these guys are helping you win this battle and win the war are they not like that's what happened in history right this is a huge part yeah and everybody knew it was a good thing <laughs> they paid them a lot more money where does this guy come off it feels a bit because it is inaccurate it's like well if we can pull this off it means a huge fucking victory for us. 
So it's like, are you trying to make 1917 or are you trying to make a league of their own? Yeah. Oh, take us seriously. We can do the thing. No, we're not going to take you seriously because you're not real soldiers. Yeah. You're not real baseball players, which I think is supposed to be a class issue. Because of how he says, this is how gentlemen win a war. Right. He's like the upper class dickhead. Get out of here, man. Soldiers are not. It's like any guy who had been dealing with actual soldiers would understand. Actual soldiers come from all walks of life. And it rings really false and hollow. Yeah. Throughout the movie. And it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. It feels very put upon. I can see there would have been some frustration over discipline issues. But the utter contempt is just grating and the rest of the people just how they're so dismissive when it seems totally unwarranted now hellfire jack is a real person right yes because i'm not getting a whole lot of hellfire and i'm not getting a whole lot of jack from this guy in his performance <laughs> so can you tell me more about him i certainly can because he seemed so interesting he was the one i was the most interested to know about when you hear his nickname and it's like hellfire jack and it's just like wow what kind of pirate shit does he do the man responsible for this big blast that we're going to talk about here at the end of the film is one i think he's a colonel at this point in his career his name is john norton griffith also known as hellfire jack And he's the one who had this unique band of specialist civilian miners and excavators who had years of experience working underground, both at coalfaces and as constructors of the Manchester sewer system. After an unsettled youth and army service in the Boer War, Norton raised the first unit of the Royal Engineering Tunneling Company to dig tunnels and lay mines under the trenches. After 1917, the clay kickers could not keep up with the rate of British troop movements above ground, and they were redeployed as road builders and general laborers in the trenches, along with Chinese coolie workers. Jack himself was redeployed to organize sabotage in the Romanian oil fields, which he did very successfully. The end of his life is probably the most interesting part of the story. After the war, Jack worked as a civil engineer in Asia and Egypt. In 1930, however, he went for his usual morning swim, only to be found later with a bullet through his head. The official verdict was suicide, though there was rumor that he may have been assassinated by Russian enemies. I was like, what? Jesus, this is the movie we get about Hellfire (laughs) Jack? Now I'm even more upset. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a lot more we could have uh, gotten about Hellfire Jack. Jesus, is this the first installment of a trilogy? Because it fucking better be. (laughs) I will say, Tom Goodman Hill plays it to the nines Mm -hmm. like all of the things that you just told us are utterly believable from that character but we just don't get to see any of it when did he get the name hellfire jack because i feel like this could be why he got the name hellfire jack because he made the biggest boom right yeah in the world at the time oh man i have to shit on one more thing i don't know if i should do that do it shit on it i'm sorry (laughs) just all over it liam's Liam's got a hard on right now (laughs) hey 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 this is not danger close enough okay you keep the fright pub shit back at fright pub (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) liam's keeping me in check everyone this episode's going off the rails so there's a couple of times where you see a close-up of a sort of darkened or or obscured that's the word shadowy yeah an obscured german machine gunner firing his machine gun and then shadowy faceless huns (laughs) 
They call him the Bosch in this, which I'd never heard before. I was like, oh, interesting. Another. They call him Fritz a lot, too. And I was like, was that the thing? But Fritz is like, it's a made up first name for an unknown German, right? When you're talking about a single mm-hmm. dude. But as a group, like I've heard the Huns before. I never heard the Bosch. I don't, I don't even know what that is. We're going to have to look that up. Anyways, you get this moment. You see the faceless machine gunner firing and... I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Again, I guess they ran out of budget, but like, good Lord, just put a Mauser in that guy's hands and have him firing an actual rifle because both the flash from the muzzle and the sound effect that they used was so cheesy and fake that I was like, oh my good Lord, especially after having seen Private Ryan, where again, obviously we're comparing big budget films to this and that's not 100% fair, but it's different from oh, let's make a hundred guns sound real by taking them out to the range and just doing it for one rifle. Like it's only one (laughs) machine gun in the shot. Or again, if you can't afford the machine gun, do it with a rifle. But like, don't give me that cheesy bullshit. And in George's death scene, both the, the squibs that are on his back again look like just the cheapest shit you could ever find and also the shots where they're trying to do this dances with wolves moment where he's like walking out in slow motion and the and the like rifle fire is sitting around him they're all like at his feet they literally just put a couple of squibs on the ground around him and just blew them up while he walked by i'm like this just does not look real whatsoever but yeah those rifle shots were so underwhelming that i was like if i was editing this i literally would have gone to the director and been like um you want to just edit this shot completely out and just put the sound of a real rifle here and just have it firing in the background because that's going to look better than what you have on screen. Yeah, just cut back to him being in pieces on the ground. I don't understand how they, they like, in the editing room, they kept those shots in the film because they looked terrible. Because none of them were good at their job. It's not very nice. I'm sorry. I, I No, I'm not sorry. I'm not You're sorry. You're not sorry. Don't lie. Don't lie. I think it's time to get into the end of the film because the ending of this film, for me, it was the best part of it. And I'm talking about the last 20 minutes before the last six minutes. Okay. If you know what I mean, like the the last few scenes of the film are are not not very good. But those moments when from the point when the sun is coming up or right before the sun is coming up and they're talking about, okay, we're going to have the bombs go off at this time. We're going to do this. And then it you watch them go through the experience of trying to just make it to the point where they can set the bombs off. That's the most interesting part. That was the part that had me really riveted of like, wow, the tension is for the most part pretty good. Mm -hmm. The acting between all of the men is at its height, especially with George and Shorty. Shorty is just given his all in that scene. That was the part I really liked the best. What did you guys think? I think the ending suffers from a lot of the same things the rest of the film is suffering from. They are compressing things and changing history. Like the Germans breaking through at the last minute. It's like, oh, I'm going to stuff my jacket in this hole to keep the German out. He's like plugging up holes with like a leg and a foot and his knee. And like, it's like, I just got to hold on 30 more seconds. Like he's in the bottom of that Titanic, just like trying to like hold the water back. It's a Looney Tunes cartoon from the 40s. Right. So Bill is like trying to hold the Germans back. His friends on the outside are like, is Bill going to make it? We got to blow up the trench or got to blow up the the uh, tunnel. 
And then all the soldiers are about to get instructions to go over the top. They're fixing bayonets and stuff. And in real life, those events were four hours apart. Like there was no last minute. The Germans didn't break through the tunnel. There was no last minute thing where the explosion just went off and like saved all the troops. Like the explosion went off as they had been planning for a fucking year at 317 in the morning. And then they had this amazing boom, boom, where again, 10,000 Germans died, like biggest explosion ever. So again, they're just like embellishing things to try and shove this climax into a funnel at the end of the film. Yeah. It already feels a little contrived, but then once you read about the history a little bit, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you're really just trying to like heighten the (sighs) tension here. And it just feels a bit too artificial. So I kind of the same feeling I had for the rest of the film. What'd you think, Liam? Did fucking anybody not think that Bill was going to die as soon as he sauntered into the frame in the beginning of the movie. You're like, oh, that's the guy who's going to die at the end. Yeah. Courageously. Probably lose another one along the way. At least. I was I was figuring most of them were going to die, honestly. Yeah. You know, as I was going through, honestly, I was like, he's definitely dying and we're going to lose one more. Hmm. And you had the best judgment because that is exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. I was like, okay, so like, this is obviously not a gritty ass movie where like they all, and then there were none kind of last man standing and blows himself up. That happens. But like, we get his friends to mourn for him as well. Right. That's the movie that we're watching, but they have to lose somebody along the way to make it feel real and to raise right. the stakes. And to give George motivation to do what he does. And it's it's just so fucking textbook. It's a plot formula that is more tired than the most tired accountant. It's just, I mean, again, there there are little microcosms of what you're talking about as well. And I, I wrote it down in like a, my list of tropes. One of them was right before they have the partial tunnel collapse and they hear the like explosions and rumbling. And they're like, oh, oh. And then they all kind of laugh at each other and then they stop laughing and kind of like, okay, that's over. And then then the thing happens and I'm like, what is this, a horror movie where everyone is like, oh, no. And then everyone's laughing and then the person gets murdered right after that. I'm like, this is like the most tired trope ever. The killer comes out of the shadows with a knife. Exactly. So before we get to our breakdown, I have several things that are good, like instances of good things about this film. But I'll ask you guys first, Liam. Tell us one good thing. I was going to go plural, but maybe we have to say one good thing. What, what were your like favorite moments, elements, scenes, whatever in this film? Two minimum. I liked Shorty. I like not Tom Hardy. Discount Tom Hardy? Okay. Yeah. Diet Tom Hardy. His name is <laughs> Joseph Stein. Is that, am I pronouncing that Stein? I have no idea. It's S-T-E-Y-N-E. So Stein? Stein? Eh. We're American. We can mispronounce English. It's yeah. Fine. We butcher everything. Especially according to the English. Especially in Pittsburgh. But yeah, he was he was great. I, I liked him. His performance and his character are the one thing with which I have uh, no real gripe, I think. Okay. I asked in the plural. Can you say one more thing? No, I don't have anything else. Oh, come on, Liam. You can do it. Come on. <laughs> what was your favorite shot? We've We've all agreed that there are moments where the cinematography is really nice. What was your favorite shot? I did not agree to that. You had no moments where you liked the cinematography in this film? No. Oh, come on. No, I know moments where I thought, like, I know it sounds like I'm just being, like, obtuse and shitty, but, like, most of this movie was completely unremarkable to me. And when it was remarkable, it was in the bad way. Except for Shorty. Except for Shorty. Like, Shorty was just like, I like him. Katie, 
<sighs> Things I liked about it. Hmm. I did like the cinematography, as I've talked about. I thought, especially the underground scenes, the lighting really surprised me with how mm-hmm. well done it was for such a low budget, like made by relatively inexperienced, which isn't a knock against them. Just they're younger, haven't made a whole lot of big budget pictures or any really for almost all the people involved in this. Shouldn't have made this one either, but. Oh, oh, caddy. Liam, where you're not, this is not the part where you shit on things. <laughs> but I did enjoy Shorty. I am also huge, huge fan. Wish there were more scenes with him. Big Shorty fans over here. Yeah. Yeah. We love that Shorty. Sam Hazelden as William Hawkins does a good job. He's very predictable, but still likable. Let's see. Some of the special effects in this. I thought were pretty good. Mm-hmm. All, all of the like CGI visual scenes, not good at all. I mean, fine, but it looks like it's out of a fucking Call of Duty video game. Right. A current Call of Duty video game, but still. <laughs> I mean, I thought the artillery hits in the background were good. Like if it yeah. was far enough away, it looked fine. It's the up close stuff. That- I'm talking about like the special effects and those scenes, like especially that beginning scene where they just poured the money out. There was a stunt coordinator on this, so that mm. means there were some actual stunts done, and some of the explosions felt, especially when like Andy Circus's kid is running through the trenches, those did feel genuine, mm. and I always prefer stunts to CGI. So, for the given value of this is an incredibly low budget, kids making movies type thing... Those are pretty good in in context. It's not 1917, but they're not Sam Mendes. Clearly. (laughs) End of list. End of list. Okay. Well, I guess I get to be the good guy here. (laughs) Yes, you you get to be the good guy. This is the first time I've ever seen a trench periscope. I thought that was a super cool prop. That was cool. That's a real thing that I know they used, and they show you the visual through it, which may or may not be accurate the way it looks, but that was a really cool prop that they used. How have we not brought up the... Sergeant Nayokas. I'm not really sure how you pronounce his name, but his character name is Sarnt, literally. But the actor is Richard Nayokas. Is that how they would have pronounced it then? Sarnt? Is that what they would have said? Sergeant. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I I knew that. But even in American English, if you hear people say Sergeant in regular interactions, it's mostly like Sarnt. They're just kind of saying it quickly. Oh, okay. Especially like Sergeant Major. You Sergeant Major. It just kind of blends together. Yeah, you just kind of blend through it. But with that Cockney accent, I think that was. But either way, a, a, you know, a British lower class accent. Yeah, he was like British early army. Yes. Okay. Not to mention that he also took the time to. <laughs> it's kind of funny in British English when he's yelling at someone for calling him sir. Sir, with respect. Shut your mouth. You don't speak to those who speaks to you. Do you understand? Yes, sir. It's not sir, it's son. Yes, son. That kind of sounds exactly the same word unless you're looking at it on paper. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. I was just waiting for him to say, I work for a living. And it's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, guys, come on. (laughs) That's like the Wilhelm scream of sergeant lines. Okay, but that guy really was a sergeant in the Royal Army. Oh, okay. In real life. So he is an Arley Army type person. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's cool. So I have to assume that his yelling and his cadence and all that stuff is like accurate. He sells it. It feels genuine. He does sell it. But 
I don't see that many movies where people correct that, especially for these guys who are basically civilians, like they're not even really in the military. I don't usually see people correcting sir. Like you see that happen all the time in movies and in real life, I'm always like, dude, a Marine would never let you call him sir if he's a sergeant. Like I appreciated that he corrected that on screen, but I don't know, I like this character. It, they don't develop him too much. He's mostly either yelling or he has the moment of kind of heart to heart during the, uh, during field punishment number one, which was a real thing. That was one of the good dramatic moments, I have to say. I did enjoy that because he feels genuine. The actor pulls it off well. The actor did fine. Yeah. I was like, oh, look at him. He's doing a great job. I'll, I'll throw in a positive note from Jackie. She's like, oh, the bird sounds in this are really accurate for Europe. She's like, that's a European <laughs> robin and like a sparrow. And like, <laughs> Was the canary accurate? They can't fucking get the guns right, but they nailed the birds. I asked her, I said, I said, is that a canary when they bring the canary? She's like, yeah, that's a canary. I'm like, okay. And there was a couple of lines too. Okay. <laughs> The drunk rat that they bring in at the end to replace the canary. What's that? Well, apparently, Army's run out of canaries, so I've had to improvise. Say hello to Fielding Junior here. That looks dead. It's not dead. It's pissed. We get a total room. As long as we can see it breathing, it's all that matters. Hey, that was hilarious. Plus, to American ears, the term pissed for like piss drunk in British is just hilarious where he's like, oh, it's what are you? Why are you bringing a dead rat? He's like, he's not dead. He's pissed. <laughs> like, it's just passed out drunken rat it's, in a cage. I had the moment, I was like, is he is it mad? Why is <laughs> no, he mad? In <laughs> British English, pissed means drunk. Yeah, right, right, it means right. wasted. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. And then I'll say there's a couple of lines that I liked. One, a little on the cornier side, but because Bill Hawking delivers it and it's one of his last lines, I appreciated it when he's trying to tell the other guy to get out of there and that, like, he'll take care of, you know, finishing up. Someone like has to leave these bloody tunnels. That, okay, that's a good line. I could just see Liam's glare at me right now. I'm almost done, Liam. <laughs> this is a really long list of things you liked, Dan. I'm just trying to finish on a positive note. We've been shitting on this movie for like an hour and a half. And then there's the line from Hellfire Jack. And I believe, again, this movie has a very little trivia. Even the quote, there's not even any quotes on IMDb. So I had to literally write this down from the film. There are eight reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, folks. But when he says, Gentlemen, tonight, we may not make history. That will certainly change the bloody geography. That's a real quote from history. I don't think it's Hellfire Jack, and I forget in this moment who actually said it, but that is a real quote from history. I thought that was a nice quote. That is a good quote. And now it's time for the breakdown, that special time in the episode when we discuss what was the objective of the film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Dan, why don't you go first, since you're feeling so optimistic? We'll go good, okay, terrible i never go first can i handle the pressure you can do it what was the objective of this film well obviously to do a smaller scale 1917 style war film about a subject that i don't think has been it certainly hasn't been widely covered or famously covered i don't know if it's the first time it's been covered but i'd never heard about it other than again in dan carlin's series i certainly haven't seen a film about tunneling under trenches in world war one so I think the objective here was to cover that topic, do it on a very limited budget, 
And I think the director having a background of visual effects, he certainly was going for a specific look to the detriment of maybe other things like we talked about. But yeah, it was to make this kind of look like a big budget production on a small budget and make it feel like a real World War I trench film. Were they on target? Mostly no. But the reason, like the caveat is that I agree with Liam that I think the problem here is in the writing and the character development. If you had developed this, like Liam says, as a, I hope I'm not taking too much out of your breakdown, Liam. No, man, you go nuts. If you were to approach this from the aspect of a theater production, where again, your budget's very limited, you don't have visual effects, you can put a couple of matte paintings up, but really you're going to be working with very little and you really have to sell it in the script and in the acting and the dialogue. I have a very, very minor level of experience here because I've helped do some rewrites and edit an audio drama with a friend of mine. And so in an audio drama, the dialogue maybe is even more important than in a theater play because there are no visuals. It's all audio. So it's all sound design, music, and what people are actually saying. So it's dialogue heavy because you can only have so long where people aren't talking. So, you know, how that dialogue comes off and whether it's believable is really important as well as the voice acting. So I think had they approached that that way, and maybe JP Watts doesn't have a theater background, so that wasn't his place. But I think had this been done as a play first, and you'd really nailed and tightened up the dialogue and the character development and those interactions, and then subsequently gotten a better budget and made this into a film, I think it could have been a more successful film. So I think it's kind of swinging a miss because of a lot of the reasons we talked about here, where there are scenes I can pull out of this that I think are mostly well done, and I really appreciate. That first scene where you go down in the trenches, again, kind of sold me. I didn't watch the trailer, but if that was in the trailer, I would have been like, oh, shit, this is like going to be an amazing World War I film. Like, it would have sold me on that. And there are little moments here and there, and there are things that I liked, but I don't think they pulled it off, try as they might have. However, when it comes to whether I like this film or not, now I watched this twice for the show. I probably won't watch this film again. I didn't really like it the first time I watched it. I appreciated it a little bit more the second time I watched it because I kind of, I knew the characters, I knew the plot better. I kind of knew where things were coming from and where things were going. And so I could see the mistakes and I could see the bad editing or bad acting in certain scenes. But I think my bottom line on this is... I have to applaud the effort of a very, very inexperienced and beginning filmmaker here. Again, there could have been different ways to go about this. And Liam, I'm sure, will try to convince everyone that if you hand him 600,000 pounds, he's going to make a movie three times this good. And maybe that's true. I'm just waiting for the chance to be proven wrong on this. (laughs) Somebody prove me wrong. Give me the 600,000 pounds. And set me loose. I'm familiar enough with Liam's writing that I could certainly say that he could write a tighter script than this and he could write better dialogue than this. I'll certainly give Liam that. Oh, God, yeah. Thank you, friends. So, I don't know. My point of view is really softened by that on this film. That's why I was so hard on We Were Soldiers, because there you're talking about people with just about all the money in the world and all of the experience and... Okay, I can't say I've seen a good Randall Wallace film, but I've seen a good Mel Gibson film like he has it in him, even though, granted, he wasn't the writer director on that one. But my point is, there's 
more to be disappointed in when you know someone has all of the potential and experience to do something and they don't pull it off. So I think what J.P. Watts has going for him here is that he doesn't have all that experience and he doesn't have all that time under his belt. So not everyone can be Robert Eggers and make The Witch as their first film and just like knock it out of the park, right? So I got to give him that, that I think this young filmmaker has potential. And I think if he hires a good writer, he has some good ideas. And I am going to keep an eye on him because I am curious to see what he does in the future. And I wish him all the best. I don't have any reason to root for him to not be successful. So I would like to see what he does in the future. And I hope he does get a bigger budget and gets better writers. So I didn't love this film. I think it's worth a watch for the audience. If anyone has is just listening to the episode and hasn't seen the film yet, it's Definitely something you can watch at home and have some popcorn and kind of there are a few good scenes and there are some good things here, which we discussed. It is a thing that you could watch. That is accurate. There are worse things that you could watch. And Liam has watched many, many worse film than this. I have. I'm going to stop there and I'll pass it off to Katie. Honestly, I wasn't quite sure of the objective of this film. I kind of feel like this film vacillates between two goals, one of which is to tell the story of men who were digging tunnels under no man's land, right? That's the most basic interpretation. To tell the story of these men and to humanize them and give us an understanding of what their lives could have been like. And the other is to talk about Hellfire Jack and how cool he was. And they kind of smash those two ideas together to tell the story. And I'm not opposed to either one of them, but I do think you need to pick one that you are going to go with. You cannot right. do both of these things at the same time because they're diametrically opposed. They're telling they're two different stories that have two different storylines. And was it on target? Honestly, yeah. But that's not necessarily a compliment. I, I think it's on target because it really does like veer strongly back and forth between trying to humanize these minor characters as an M-I-N-E-R. They're going and digging holes, you know, and give us their relationships with their significant others and their relationships with each other. And then it also tries to have these big, deep moments with Hellfire Jack that in some ways feel disparate from the rest of the movie because we either need a lot more of him in the film or a lot less because he's just kind of a distraction is how we see him or at least how i saw him did i like it it's fine i'm damning with faint praise here it's fine it's not a bad movie i will say it is really good for a second directorial effort for like this is his first big film but he'd done a bunch of short films before then this is pretty good for making a world war one movie with six hundred thousand dollars or six hundred thousand pounds you probably could have only done that in britain where there are a shit ton of resources that you can access with not a whole lot of money because like we said before a lot of this film was shot like all of the office scenes are shot in a museum but I, I, I wasn't particularly compelled by it. But what I was compelled by was the history behind it. I was very interested in like the men who were actually doing this work were sewer builders. And 
Sewers were something relatively, they, they had only been around for maybe 60 years in London. London during the reign of Queen Victoria, one of Prince Albert's big projects was building sewers in London. And so this is a relatively new thing. London has been around for thousands of years from a tiny city to what it is now. So there are layers upon layers of housing and districts and all of this garbage, all of this stuff in London. And so being someone who was building those sewers, digging the tunnels, all of that was an incredibly skilled job. And I do like that they kind of give us a little bit of that. And I like that these people who are doing what is often considered by a layman, like not really that skilled of work was actually pretty impressive. And we do get a, a few moments of seeing how they're calculating like, okay, we're underground, but we're going to move this many feet and go over here. We need to judge our elevation. We need to take all of these factors into consideration. And that's the part that was really interesting to me is the science behind what's happening. And the fact that all of these men who are engaging in this science almost certainly have not gone to school for it. They have learned it on the job as probably young children, considering the time frame. He does say man and boy. Yeah, I liked that part of it. I liked thinking about the history behind it. And it made me interested enough to go and I, I'd love to read a book from these miners perspective and get a more realistic approach as to what exactly they did because that explosion was a feat of human ingenuity and i don't know that it gets quite enough credit for the scientific advancement that it was in the film as it should have so i'm probably not gonna watch this again i guess if i was sick and like laying on the couch <laughs> And I just want something to put in the background. If you were already nauseous. Yeah, I just want something to put in the background and like... That's something to throw up to. I've, I've already watched all the Tom Hardy films ever recently. And I, I'm like, ah, I could do with some melodrama, but I'm not into, you know... I've already gone through like all of the 70s and the new version of Poldark. And I just need some British melodrama. Sure, I'll throw this on. And I'm going to be kind of napping throughout it. but. I don't see a point where I'm going to sit down to watch this again just because of the qualities of the film. But I, I will say, I'm not upset or sad or feel like it was necessarily a waste of my time that I watched it. I was just like, mm, this was fine. So for any listeners who have not watched this film yet and are waiting to get talked into it, you're lucky because Liam still have to give us his breakdown. <laughs> This is my time. This is my time to convince you. Liam, sell this movie to the listeners. So I am probably going to watch this movie again once. What? Because my son likes to watch the movies so that he can listen to the podcast. Okay. Yeah. And, and that would be one reason I would watch it again. I, if my kid. If your kids were interested in listening to the podcast. <laughs> my, kid, my oldest son doesn't give a shit about the fact that I'm a podcaster. He's like, okay, mom, that's nice for you. Yeah, my son still loves it. I don't know why. but Oh, I wish. But if he wanted to watch something like that, this is something I would show him. I agree. Yeah. So like one once more just for the boy. But uh, yeah, other than that, no. And. My my feelings about this movie aren't entirely this movie's fault. I think there's been some leeway cut for some leeway given uh, for the fact that this is J.P. Watts' first feature film and that he had a fairly limited budget. 
on, and not to plug my other podcast, but we just did on Fright Pub, The Wind from 2018, which was a lady named Emma Tammy's feature film debut as a director. And that movie will fuck you right in the eyes. That movie is good and it is interesting. And I loved it. So a lot of the like, ah, it's his first time out. I'm like, nah, fuck that guy. Give me Emma Tammy helming this movie. I mean, I brought up Robert Eggers. I, I did bring up an example of a first time filmmaker that did a great job. You did, but that's one that everybody has now heard of. And he's gone on to be like, you know, he's, he's got the lighthouse under his belt and he's going to be giving us the, what is it? The Northman. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's part of the reason why I'm like, ah, I'm really underwhelmed by all of this despite everybody's best efforts at talking me down. The objective of this film is a fucking mystery to me. Apart from saying that we want to take art house money and make a prestige picture with it, which I don't even have words for what a bad choice that was. (laughs) If you're lucky enough to get art film money, do something interesting with it. Don't, essentially squander it trying to make a, a a much bigger picture than you have the budget for it'll go much better for you if you don't do that was it on target no it wasn't no okay so i will say maybe 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 <laughs> maybe the objective was to highlight this part of history that I had certainly not heard about most people haven't heard about it because most people don't give a shit about world war one, or at least didn't before 1917 came out. Mm -hmm. So was it trying to be like, Hey, everybody likes world war one. Now, maybe I should tell them about this story from world war one that I really like and think everybody should know about. If that was the objective, then sure. It was on target because now I know about this thing that I didn't know about. That's not always a good reason to make a movie. And it's no excuse for making the movie like this. So did I like it? (laughs) Everyone's on pins and needles. (laughs) (laughs) I know I've masked my intentions. This is one of those rare movies where I actually like it less. The more and more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the less I like it. I came in today, honest to God, not intending to shit on this movie. I really didn't plan on it because it was, it was just kind of like a meh viewing experience. Like I was like, Oh, okay. I mean, this is a thing that is happening in front of my, my eyeballs right now. And that's fine. I mean, it's not like, it's not like kicking me in the balls or anything. It's just being a, a movie. That's not very good. That's up there. That's going and it's running. And then I'm like, and then I have to start thinking about it. And then I have to start talking about it. And it's just really kind of mind boggling to me that it exists at all. And I'm not necessarily certain that I'm glad that it does. I don't know. My life isn't worse because this movie exists. Well, good. Thank God. I don't know. I'm always just a little bit like, who's giving this fucking guy the money? (laughs) But, you know, I understand that that's a certain amount of jealousy speaking. But at the same time, I'm like. Why did you squander this awesome opportunity you had by making this movie? And that's my, those are my thoughts on that. No, I didn't like it. Okay. We all had lots of opinions. So what are we doing next, guys? Next is the winner of our most recent listener poll, which narrowly, kind of narrowly, 
beat out the Bridge Over the River Kwai, who is in second place and has a chance at making it if it gets second place one last time for its third round. But the film that did win is 1917, Sam Mendes's 2019 film about World War One that also involves a lot of trenches, with Sir Roger Deakins doing the cinematography, and he won an Oscar for it. I don't think there's any doubt that the cinematography is amazing in that film. I think you need to refer to him as with his full name, Sir Roger fucking Deakins the first. All right. The funny thing is, is that year he was actually up for two Oscars for cinematography for 1917 and The Goldfinch, which The Goldfinch is not a good movie in any way, shape or form. But the cinematography is fucking gorgeous. They spent all the money on Roger Deakins, apparently. Yeah, Roger Deakins can do no wrong. We've we've discussed him thoroughly before. True. Yeah. So Dean Charles Chapman and George Mackay run around as two messengers. The story is loosely based on Sam Mendes's grandfather, who was a runner or messenger in World War One. I have podcasted about this film before. I have lots of opinions about it, and I've done a lot of research on it. I watched all the behind the scenes, and so I am very much looking forward to that episode. You guys have seen the film, I'm assuming? I have, and my my son has been... Oh, it's his favorite. It's his, it's his favorite movie. That's right. Kieran, we are excited that you're listening to the show, and we are very happy to be doing your favorite movie soon, and so is the audience, because they voted for it. He has been bugging me about this. He's like, when are you guys going to do 1917? Did you tell them I said we should do 1917? We, by the way. Right. That's what he says. Yeah. When are we going to do 1917? That's You guys should do 1917. I'm just like, okay, shut up. I told him it's in the poll. I put it in the thing. Dad rigged the voting machines and uh, it won the poll. I did. I rigged the voting (laughs) machines for you. I did. I don't know how to do that. Here's my sad secret. No. You haven't seen it yet? No way. I haven't seen this yet. That's awesome. It was on my list to see it for a while. And then once we started doing the show, I was like, do I want to watch 1917 or do I want to save the experience for the show? And so I decided I was like, mm, just going to put it off and I'll, I'll enjoy it when it rolls around for us to talk about. Very cool. And I love Sam Mendes and have ever since American Beauty. World War One is the war I know the most about and am the most fascinated by. And... I'm a sucker for a, even if it's not actually a one shot. Simulated one shot. Exactly. So I'm a sucker for something like that, especially when it's this kind of huge, big budget production. So I am like over the moon because I've put this forward before to be on the poll. And so. Oh, yeah. I've voted for it before. Yeah, I have too. And so when Liam talked about Kieran wanting to see it, I was like, oh, I'm, I don't even care what I submitted for this poll. I'm voting for 1917. Because <laughs> why not? I had no idea that Katie had not seen this before. I am that much more excited for this episode now. No, that is news to me. It's not something I would usually reveal, but I was like, I'm mm, just going to be honest. Totally honest today. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. We want to thank you guys for following the show and listening for being patrons. If you're a patron of the show, you can sign up for just four bucks a month to hear us do North by Northwest was our last Patreon episode that came out or one of our most recent ones. So if you want to get into some old Cary Grant Hitchcock spy espionage action, Check that out. You can go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. Again, it's only four bucks a month. I think we've got at least 
10 episodes at this point in there, so you can get a whole lot more of uh, Liam trying to shit on things and us yelling at him for it, or vice versa. You know, it's a mix of things. But not North by Northwest. Not North by Northwest. No, by all means. Don't tell the people. Spoilers, (laughs) guys. Come on. If you want to participate in the discussion with all our other listeners, you can go to Facebook and go to Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. And join the conversation there. Lots of good memes, as well as uh, Jeff, Kyle, Peter, and Dave doing great write-ups on all the tech, gear, weapons, vehicles, airplanes in the films that we cover. So I guess that's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Bye.